The fear of rejection in my life has probably caused me more turmoil than anything I've experienced. The best you're ever going to feel is dedicating yourself to something that requires you to put in a lot of fucking work. So I think when you don't feel that sense of belonging at a young age, you internalize it as something being wrong with you. Yeah. You don't realize that it's because you're not in the right environment or you don't realize you don't have the, the mature brain to look at it and think, I just, this isn't the right place for me. There are so many subject matter experts who devote their lives to things that you could learn about that'll change the trajectory of your life but instead you're focusing on politicians mm -hmm. and freaking out over who you're gonna vote for the f out of here that's how i feel kyle creek aka the captain but we're now going by kyle creek yeah moving forward i mean it's gonna probably go that direction more and more okay well welcome to this podcast i'm so excited to have you i've been sharing your work for years and years, you know this. Yeah. Um, but I'm so excited to have you because I feel like everything that you post, everything that you say is so valuable and can really change the trajectory of people's lives for the better. You're different and you say things that aren't necessarily in alignment with the norm or any particular tribe. And that's what makes you so special. And I feel like that's why everyone on the internet just seems to gravitate towards you. Um, but I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to begin by talking to you about how you got here. Well, first of all, I appreciate the support. I have seen you share my work many times over the years, and that's kind of how I, I decided to reach out to you. Um, and also like the idea of the whole trying to avoid tribalism thing, that is something that I've been very deliberate with, trying not to pigeonhole myself into a certain camp, but also try not to encourage people to do that. I mean, especially the past few years, I had a lot of people that would write to me and say, you know, why haven't you chosen sides? Why don't I know what side you're on? And I would always tell them I'm on the side of the people. Like the fact you don't know what side I'm on shows that I'm trying to think critically about things and also encourage people to do that themselves. And that's really how my whole career kind of started. We were talking before this, but I've wanted to be a writer pretty much my whole life. I grew up reading a lot of books. My mom always encouraged me to read. Um, and when I got into college, I, I majored in business, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to be a drummer in a metal band. That was like my my goal in life was I to be in a band. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> that was my goal in life was to be in a band. I always liked music. I had a real affinity for like rock music growing up. Um, but I figured I should probably go to school um, in case that didn't happen. And when I was in school, in like my classes, I was always getting A's on my papers and it encouraged me to want to write more. I was like, damn, I'm actually pretty good at this. And it was because growing up, my mom encouraged me to read. My mom would often give me allowance if I would write her book reports based on what I read. And so I kind of just grew up doing that. And so in college is when I was like, this is, this is all I want to do. Um, and people ask me now what I would do if I wasn't a writer. And I honestly can't wrap my head around that idea. There's nothing I could even picture myself doing that would appeal to me as, as much as writing. And so I've wanted to do it pretty much my whole life. Um, but it's hard. Uh, when I was tr first starting out, I couldn't get people to let me write for them for free. I was offering to write articles for the local paper. I grew up in Utah. I was writing like music reviews, of, like bands that would come into town, kind of merging my love for music and writing. And they would turn me down. They would uh, print my pieces. And I kept trying to to make a living as a writer. I ended up living at home till I was 27 because I just could not get work that was like sustainable. And I finally got into advertising 
when I was 27, and I became a copywriter at an agency. And that was when I had enough money to really move out for the first time. And I'd interviewed with every agency in Salt Lake, and I heard verbatim from one of the creative directors. He said, you're a really talented writer, but you have your fingers tattooed, so I can't hire you because you won't present well to clients. And I just remember thinking, this is so fucking stupid. Like, anything that's going to not hire me for that reason is just something I don't want to Because you have tattoos because and you're not going to present well? I have my fingers tattooed. I was verbatim told that. And so I interviewed with one more agency, and I told the creative director, I said, if you don't hire me, I'm just going to say fuck it to this whole dream of writing. I'm going to find something else to do. Because, you said that to the guy. Yeah, I said, because no one else has given me a chance, and I'm sick of it. And I was just, like, young and pissed off. And he hired me because of that. He's like, I loved it. He's like, I could tell all you wanted to do is write. So that got my my start as like a professional writer, um, and I wrote a lot of commercials. I've probably written a couple hundred TV commercials. I've done a lot of work in like the branding space for hotels, and I ended up moving to New York City for a while, working as a writer there for a lot of hospitality brands. But on the side, I always wanted to write more. I wanted to write the kind of stuff you were talking about. I wanted to write like you know stuff that felt emotional, or I wanted to write things that felt like they actually helped people. I, I loved that I was making money as a writer, but at the same time, all I was doing was kind of selling stuff, and it wasn't that fulfilling. So I started trying to make my scripts, like, funny. I started trying to write, like, really clever jokes into my work, and clients would often reject it because they thought my jokes were too crude. And, and I remember thinking, ah, these jokes are they're too good to die, so I'm going to start tweeting these. And so I'd take, like, my jokes that clients would reject, and I'd tweet them. I'd make, like, a really good observation or, like, I'd – one of the jokes specifically is I was working for a furniture company and I wrote a joke about comparing finding a coffee table to finding the ideal mate. Like you don't want someone too big or too small. You want someone that fits your style. But in the end, what you really want is something stable. I mean, you want a coffee table that's stable and you want a relationship that's stable. And I thought it was a clever joke. They didn't like it. So I tweeted it and it did pretty well. And so it got to the point that I would start taking my really good observations. I would keep them for myself. I would tweet them. And I give my clients, like, my B and C grade work. Um, and that's kind of how my Twitter started. It was me just, as I was working, I was taking stuff that I felt was relevant and just sharing it online. But you had two different identities because you, Kyle Creek, different than yeah. the captain. Yeah, so that's it, it's because it was so hard for me to get a job as a writer. When I finally did, I was so grateful. I didn't want to fuck it up. Like, I remember my first job paid me $52,000 a year, and I was able to afford uh, a truck and an apartment. And I just remember thinking, holy shit. I, I remember I'd go to bars with my buddies, and, like, when, when girls would ask what I did for work, I was like, I'm a writer. Like, and I just, I fe- <laughs> it felt so cool that I could afford a lifestyle as a writer, and I did not want to lose that. And so when I started tweeting, and because a lot of my opinions, as, as you've probably seen over the years, are fairly controversial, and I didn't want my online – um, work to affect my professional career. So I went by the name The Captain because in my early 20s, my, my buddies had started calling me The Captain because they said going out and partying with me was like getting on a boat and waiting for it to sink because I was, I was really rowdy and I had just a lot of stuff I was working through. A lot of insecurity is what it was. And so when I went out, I was I, was, I kind of prided myself on how many bars I could get kicked out of. That's just what I was. Wow, you were that guy. Yeah, I was a terrible person. Um, when you're 20, were you a terrible? Did you do you actually feel that you were a no, terrible person? No, I was person? a terrible person. No, okay. I, I was very insecure. Um, 
Hi- highly relatable, by the way. I, Barely, think, I yeah. think most of us are insecure and don't want to admit it, but we'll get into and it. And I think most people you see that are very outlandish in their behavior like that are also insecure. Uh, the, the real reason when I look back on it while I was like that is it made me unapproachable to people in the sense that they would look at me and go, God, that guy just doesn't care. And I, I wanted it to be very obvious that I didn't care. And in doing so, it actually just kind of showed people I cared too much. And so I was always trying to get kicked out. I was always trying to, you know, get into, get into fights. I was always trying to, I mean, I, I did a lot of drugs. I got really into cocaine for a while, and I just loved the way it made me feel. And I remember people used to tell me, like, I used to come here to L.A. often to hang out with some of my friends here, and they would say, you know, my friends, like, they're afraid to hang out with you because they just, they've heard stories of you. And I remember thinking that was like a badge of honor. I was like, oh, fuck yeah, like, no one can hang with me. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I got that nickname. Thankfully, I grew out of that eventually, at least that, uh, that side of myself, but the nickname has stuck around. And so that's why I started using it online. I didn't want people to find out who I was in my professional career. And when I moved to New York, it, I, I had a pretty decent following then as the captain. And I was sitting at a meeting, I remember this, with uh, it was a Ritz-Carlton property that I was coming on as a creative director for. And I was sitting around a table of a bunch of executives, probably in their 50s and 60s, and one of the guys leans over to me and says, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. And I thought he was talking about, like, my advertising portfolio. Yeah. And he's like, no, like, my wife and I follow you on Instagram. We think it's awesome. And that was the first time, like, my worlds had really intersected like that. And then it got to a point where I started getting work because of that um, in my advertising career. The past few years, before I left my, I left my advertising job full-time in 2018, um, but the last year or two, I would, I would get work because people knew who I was online. And so they would hire me to work for their bar. I was doing a lot of bar and hotels. And so in that space, it was very uh, advantageous for me to be known as someone who's kind of out there and outlandish because they wanted me to work on their nightclubs, essentially, kind of thing. So, um, But really, I, I've always just wanted to write books. Even when I had my advertising career, um, I remember telling my friends, like, my goal is to write one book a year and just disappear. Like I wanted to show up, turn in a manuscript to a publisher and then just disappear for a year and come back and like that's kind of, you know, you were asking me before, we were in the stairwell coming down from getting drinks, you asked me, uh, you know, what what do you, what's gonna happen with like your, your, your following? And really I told you, I was like, I just wanna write books. I wanna write and be left alone. I wanna write really deep, meaningful stuff and that's why I'm dropping that captain off. Um, the book I'm working on now, which started as a memoir, um, and that's why I'm able to kind of talk about all this stuff, my insecurities in my 20s and stuff, because the past year I've been processing that stuff pretty heavily, working on this this current book I'm doing. It started as a memoir, but it's evolved into something much more than that. I think it's more powerful now. It still does have a lot of my personal story in there. I couldn't imagine putting the captain name on that. I think it would be a major disservice to how much work I've poured into that book, but also just the uh, – the impact that I hope the book's going to have. If it had the captain on it, I'd honestly feel sick to my stomach. You know what's interesting? I talk to a lot of artists, whether it's musicians, writers, whatever, creatives. And it's crazy how many people start with a pseudonym or mm-hmm. something else because it's really hard to be vulnerable. It's exactly what it and is. Co- yeah, right? And come out yeah. as you and, and then have this mode of expression because it's, it's – I think it's because it's – it's scary to be rejected. Mm-hmm. You put yourself out there and it's like, what if people don't like it? But if they don't like it as this person who isn't me, then whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not as embarrassing. It's exactly, that's Was exact. that it? Yeah, you nailed it exactly. I've actually told someone that before. I remember I used to, uh, 
when I used to write something that wasn't received well online, I would be like, oh, that was that was the captain that wasn't me. So like, it's okay if people don't like it. Yeah. Um, it really was. Um, it's a good little barrier. And I like that you said a fear of rejection because I was actually thinking on the drive over here, like oddly enough, because um, I'm always processing what I'm writing now. The fear of rejection in my life has probably caused me more turmoil than anything I've experienced. And it started at a young age. I grew up in a Mormon household. Um, my whole family is very Mormon. I wasn't. When I was 14, I kind of totally pushed away from the church. And from then on, I never really felt accepted by my parents. Um, I have a great relationship with them. We never stopped talking, but I never really felt like they accepted me because I wasn't a part of their religion anymore. Um, and so I always had this fear of rejection from other people because my brothers both stayed in the church, and I was the only one that wasn't active. And so I never had a – like my teenage years, I never hung out with my brothers. Uh, we were polar opposites in our lifestyle. They were going to church, getting ready to go on a morning mission, and I was out smoking weed and you know, selling drugs with my friends and stuff because I was, just, I was just on a mission to rebel so far away from what I knew. Um, so the fear of rejection is largely what, what drove my lifestyle, and it absolutely has uh, been more painful than anything else because it's just caused me to do things that I, I know weren't me at the time. And they've almost always just ended badly. <laughs> when when did you change though? Because you described yourself as this guy who was like doing cocaine. Becoming a father. That was it. Yeah, it was that easy. Um, but but you still you still found a woman and had a relationship as as. Yeah, what? we broke up for we broke up for six months. When we first got together because I wasn't ready to pull out of that lifestyle. Um, it, it, I was I was living in New York City. And she was living in L.A. We met in, in a bar in New York, and she ended up spending the weekend with me because she got drunk and missed her flight. And it was awesome. It was the first time I really felt like I could be just myself with her because she just felt made it feel so easy. Um, so we did a long-distance thing for about a year, and then I could see she's pulling away from me, and I just wasn't committing. I was still trying to have my lifestyle of you know being free and you know kind of very independent. And I, I decided to move to L.A., to pursue something with her, but I just moving to LA was culture shock for me in the sense that when I was in New York, I, this is when I left my advertising role too. I had, I was running an office in New York and I had a lot of responsibility and I was constantly in demand. And when I left all that behind, I came to LA and I kind of felt like I had nothing. And I went from living in like the middle of Manhattan to Agora Hills. And I just felt like, holy fuck, I'm in the middle of the desert. I felt so isolated. And my way of escaping myself previously was just drinking and traveling all the time. Like I prided myself on how often I could be out of town and how, how hard I was to get a hold of. Like I thought it was a symbol of my importance. And so I was trying to constantly just be gone and be on the road and be at bars and have my friends never be able to kind of keep tabs on me. And so when I came to LA, I had to sit with myself for the first time in probably over a decade. Um, Cause my career trajectory happened pretty quickly. And uh, I wasn't ready to get out of my shit. And so she broke up with me. She, it was the right move at the time. And we ended up getting back together six months later, and then COVID hit. And I went through it kind of all over again. Because during those six months we broke up, I got a publishing deal, and I had, like, some things going off in my, uh, in my writing career were starting to work out for me. But then we got back together, and everything shut down. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't have myself to fall back on. And that's really where the captain thing harmed me too is because a lot of my friends at the time didn't know me as anything other than the captain. 
I had like a couple buddies from high school that knew me as Kyle, but pretty much my entire network was captain related and people just called me captain and called me cap and no one called me Kyle. Um, so when I needed to fall back on Kyle, he wasn't even there. I'd forgotten who that person was. I'd buried him so long ago. And so I went through like major, major depression. Um, how'd you get out of that? It was, it was, it was hard. Um, I went through, I went through a major spell of depression and I got to the point that I actually was, uh, I was suicidal. And I remember I was writing, I was writing a note and I was kind of justifying it as like a writing exercise. I remember telling myself I was just practicing, but it really was when I look back on it, it was like a, a, a note to my nephews. Cause I have two, two nephews and I didn't want them to to go through life the way I did. And so I kind of wrote him a note because I didn't have a son at the time, and I was basically kind of warning them against where I felt I went wrong in life and how I got to the place where I was that depressed. And I remember writing that, and I remember thinking, I remember sitting back and going, like, holy shit, like, I I, I mean this. Like, I really realized how deep in depression I was. Um, So I decided to go totally sober. Um, and not run for myself anymore. I got off social but you didn't, media. You didn't. You wrote the note, but you didn't do anything. No, 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 no. I wrote the note, and that was enough of a wake up call for me because it, it, it. I knew that I, uh, I was serious behind my intention. What did it say? Uh, just a lot of the kind of warning stuff about you know, kind of what we talked about here about um, how my fear of rejection kind of controlled my life and how my lack of uh, vulnerability caused me to be so insecure and how I pursued a lot of the long, wrong things in life. Um, I just wanted to be important so badly in my early 20s because I felt like I didn't have that as a kid um, that I just I sought attention more than connection for sure. There's a there's a clip of Joe Rogan talking about all the people who get into comedy and want to be actors. And he says it's because most of them felt almost all of them felt a void Mm -hmm. in their childhood. And that finally, when they have the spotlight on them. Yeah. They think, okay, now I'm a something person. The mm-hmm. spotlight's on me. Um, and it's a theme that I notice with almost everybody. I think everybody wants to know that they're important and that they matter. Everybody. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, it's a human a, need to want to feel it important. Is. And, yeah. and to feel a sense of belonging. I think the common thread that I see with what you just said, you know, you grew up Mormon. So you, a lot of us grow up in communities, societies that are not really for us. You know what I mean? Whether it's religious or a school or any type of environment where they're telling you, you need to do this, you need to follow these rules, you need to believe this. And then when you feel different from that, you're like, okay, well, I'm not accepted here. So I need to find belonging somewhere else. I need to do this somewhere else. And that's where I notice that people veer off the path and start doing drugs and, and you know, whatever whatever their thing is. Well, th- the thing is, too, I think when you don't feel that sense of belonging at a young age, you internalize it as something being wrong with you. Yeah. You don't realize that it's because you're not in the right environment or you don't realize you don't have the, the mature brain to look at it and think, I just, this isn't the right place for me. You think you're wrong and you think there's something that you did, you know, you fucked it all up. Uh, did your parents contribute to that feeling and, and amplify it and make Unintentionally, it Unintentionally, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing that I feel like our generation is really into, like, you know, personal development yeah. and therapy and inner child work and things like that. But all of us had parents who didn't know anything. Like, there's no, in, there's no instruction manual yeah. for how to be a parent. And it's like all of us had parents that projected this idea of what they wanted us to be 
and uh, and like what what you're sharing i just feel like is so common among i think the thing is too is my parents were kids raising kids like when my dad was my age i was 11 my other brother would have been 12 or 13 and my younger brother would have been eight i mean i didn't have my son until i was 35. Um, my dad started having kids in his early 20s. And like I said earlier, man, my early 20s are when, like, the captain was birthed. That was me being a rowdy individual. I couldn't imagine being a parent then. I had so much to figure out and process in my own life. And so it's allowed me to hold a lot of grace with my parents, knowing they were really young. They didn't really know what they were doing. Um, but more so, the kind of stuff that really affected me was the religion side of things because I never sought life advice from my parents ever because their advice always revolved around reading a scripture or saying your prayers. And since I didn't identify with that, I didn't want to hear it. I was like, I needed someone to talk to me as a human. I needed to have like my father talk to me as like a father and son and not feel like I was dismissed. Um, And he wasn't intentionally doing that. It's just what he thought was the right thing to do was to tell me, oh, if you're feeling lost, pray about it. Or if you, you need some answers, go read the, go read your scriptures, you know, go read the Bible or something. That's not what I needed. I needed my dad to like relate to me and be like, oh yeah, I remember feeling that way when I was a teenager and it sucked and here's what, that's what I needed. I didn't get that. So I never sought them as advice. And so I kind of had this me against the world mentality um, pretty much my entire life. I actually tattooed the word solitude across my fingers. That's like, wow. that's what I tattooed on myself in my early 20s. And again, I think it was kind of my way of trying to justify the way I was living and also keep people at a distance. Um, when I when I met my girlfriend in New York, she actually asked what my fingers said, and I told her, and she said, uh, "Who are you trying to convince, me or you?" And that was wow. her response to it, and I was like, "Fuck, man, she's she's got my number, she knows." Wow. Um, and so that's what made it very hard for me to uh, kind of work past that stuff because I felt like my fierce independence made me successful. I think if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have fought as hard to be known as a writer, and I probably wouldn't have fought as hard to make a career for myself. It was because I had that chip on my shoulder. So it was kind of like a catch-22 because when I did get in a relationship, when I did find out I was going to become a dad, like I had to you know, get rid of all that. It wasn't planned. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Um, and it, it, was, it spiraled me really bad into depression because I just wasn't ready for it. And I remember thinking um, – you know, I'm, I'm too fucked up to raise a kid. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help this kid out. I can barely help myself. It's interesting that you're saying that, that you have that you felt like you were too fucked up because I've been following you for years, and if someone's just reading your tweets, they're like, this guy's not fucked up at all. This guy has all the answers. Yeah, and a lot. Of, the thing is that I always tell people this. Majority of my work is me talking to myself. Yeah. Um. And I still stand by pretty much everything I've said because I do think it's the right way to go. And a lot of it is me kind of processing mistakes I made over the years. Because I would have moments where I felt like I had my life going in a very good direction and I would be able to look back and reflect on what I did to change things. And so like, okay, like I actually do feel like I can help some people because I can relate on so many levels. But I, I needed those tweets as much as anyone else did, you know, especially at certain times in my life. And then there was the ones I wrote that were just meant to be, you know, funny and comedy kind of stuff and those those are thankfully the ones that became a lot more popular because i can't be called a hypocrite as much for those yeah um but yeah i think most creators or artists like you were saying you have to derive some inspiration from your own life or it just falls very flat i think the reason why people can relate with my work so much even though at the time i was dealing with my own stuff is because it was very real 
like everything I said was very real and I meant everything I said. And I always told people that, like, even though it's, I put the captain on it, like, I mean what I say. Like, I, I think about it deeply when I write something. I don't just like randomly shoot something out there and not think about the responsibility behind it. Um, and I felt comfortable doing that because it wasn't my name on it. I felt comfortable probably being more vulnerable as the captain because, you know, like you talked about, because it wasn't me. And so if I did write something that was either disliked or seen as like almost too vulnerable, it's like, oh, well, it's that captain character. It was easy for me to dismiss it. Yeah. One of your tweets that I see a lot is the one that's like, I want untouchable love. Yeah. I know that one you're talking about. Do you have it memorized? <laughs> uh, I don't have it memorized, but I know the one you're talking about. I actually wrote that when my girlfriend and I were broken up. Um, and I'd, I'd gotten sober. I don't think I'd been sober for more than a week for probably 10 years of my life. And so I decided I was going to go sober for at least 100 days just to give myself some clarity. And around like day 50, 60, like I think I really started getting like a whole different way of, of, of viewing my, my life. And it, it prevented me from getting away from myself. I also got off social media at the time too. So basically all I was doing all day is reading books and just staring at a fucking wall. What books are you reading? Um, I read The Mastery of Self by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., which I think is probably one of the most helpful books I've, I've read in my life. Um, if you're familiar with The Four Agreements, it's yeah. his, son. his yeah. son. His son wrote The Mastery of Self. And I've actually become good friends with their family now. It's, it's uh, uh, Jealous. It's cool because um, <laughs> Don Miguel Ruiz actually posted a photo of himself holding my book, Speech Therapy. And I remember thinking, like, no. what the fuck? Like, that was – it was like one of those crazy uh, come full circle moments. But – the Mastery of Self helped me a lot. Four Agreements helped me a lot. And then I, I think what was most helpful for me is being off of social media, quite honestly. Because social media for me, it, it fed um, a lot of that false ego I had. And it wasn't just distraction as much as it was an actual place where I derived a lot of my self-worth. And so when I got off it, I had to find like somewhere else to to, to get that self worth again. Like I said, I had to fall back on Kyle and not the captain. So during that time period, when I was just kind of processing how I was going to move forward in life, is when, is when I wrote that tweet you're talking about. Because I remember thinking, um, you know, I remember thinking if I do get back together with her, if we do find a way to make this work, like that's how I want it to be. Um, I, I want it to to not be able to be affected by like. You know, the whole untouchable idea is that it can't be affected by, like, external factors. Like, other people can't get, get in your business or things that are happening on the outside of your relationship can't affect your relationship is kind of where that was meant to go. Yeah. And how did you, how did you realize that she was the one for you? Because up until that point, you know, no one else is the mother of your child. <laughs> it's, she's clearly the one. I think it's I, – I think it was when – it was actually when um, I was still living in New York, but there was like a Malibu fire happening here. It was like October of like 2018 mm -hmm. is when there was those big fires. Yeah. Um, and she had to evacuate her house. I remember that because the fire came right up to her backyard. And I realized I actually cared. Like I was actually worried about her. And I was actually afraid something might happen to her. And so I was checking in, not just like out of politeness. Like I had like genuine concern. And I remember thinking to myself, like, holy shit, I actually think I love this woman because I, I really am, like, worried for her right now. And that was kind of when it clicked to me, and I never really felt that way about anyone before. How long into the relationship was that? That would have been six months, maybe. Six months for you to realize that? 
and you had never felt that way before? No, I never let anyone that close to me before. Oh, wow, okay. I'd been single my entire life until my relationship with her. That was the first relationship I've ever been in. That's insane. Yeah, I was single. I was single. I was very deliberately single, and I I thought it was the right thing to do, and I remember, like, telling women I was dating, like, listen, like, this is just me. I'm going to be single. Like, you're not. You're, I'm, I'm never going to be in a relationship. And I, I remember putting that out there up front thinking I was like doing them a favor. And you look back now and you're like, God, that's just so weak. Um, but at the time, it just felt like I, what I needed to do. And I felt like I just needed to be honest. Like a, a, at that point, they could kind of make their decision if they were going to try and, you know, pursue something and know that it wasn't going to go anywhere or not. So I was just trying to be really honest with my intentions. But I just really um, – I care about things – too deeply and I knew that I would get hurt if I was in a relationship because that's just the kind of person I am. I, I, I could care about things a lot. And that was it was what scared me about becoming a father. Um, I actually wrote about this in my newsletter a couple weeks back. The thing that scared me most about being a dad is I knew that I was going to love that little boy so much that it was going to open me up to all sorts of pain. Um, because like watching him hurt himself or just thinking about like something happening to him is probably like the worst feeling you could ever have. And I figured, Oh, if you're never a parent, you don't have to feel that. It's like someone said to me, you know, the moment you bring a dog home, you have to accept the fact that someday that dog's going to die. And I was like, what a depressing way to look at it. I mean, I know it's true, but that shouldn't be a reason why you shouldn't get a dog Mm -hmm. because something bad is going to happen in life inevitably with everything, but you should still enjoy every moment before that. And so I was the same reason I was avoiding a relationship. I didn't want to get hurt. Um, I was afraid of becoming a dag, so I didn't want to get hurt again. And it was a lot of my just um, unwillingness to be vulnerable. Like I said, that fear of rejection and also just the fear of uh, emotionally connecting to something that I avoided for many years in my life. Wow. I'm probably doing that now. I think a lot of people do, and you don't realize it. Yeah, just until you said it right now. Mm. I'm like, wow, that's probably the exact reason. And the only reason I know this yeah. is because I've been working on this book for the past year and I've been processing things very deeply for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't come to the realizations myself until I would write these memoir pages about my life in my 20s and deeply analyzing why I was the way I was. And then I'm like, it would just hit me and I'd be like, oh my God. Like, like there's some mornings like I'll be sitting at my laptop and I'll just cry because um, I'll come to realizations that I just buried or just thought were not the truth. And they'll just hit me, and I'm just like, fuck, like, this makes so much sense. And that's why it would break my heart to put anything other than my real name on my books moving forward, because I do think there's so, I have so much emotion tied into these books. Do you feel like you would cut yourself off from emotion in your 20s? Totally. I cut myself off from emotion the moment I left the Mormon church. Wow. When I was a teenager, the moment I didn't feel accepted by my parents, um, I cut myself off. I remember um, I came home with my ears pierced, and I remember my my mom, and I think she feels very bad about this now, um, she wanted to kick me out of the house, and I I think I was 16, and I remember just thinking, like, wow, that's, like, that's the strength of my relationship with my mother. Like, if I have earrings, she doesn't want me to be her son anymore. And I remember just thinking, like, wow, that's fucked up. Um, and my dad fought for me, though. My dad's like, I remember my dad saying, no, I don't care if he has his ears pierced. 
Uh, he probably used some other examples. He's my son, and I'm never going to kick him out. And I remember thinking, like, fuck yeah, my dad went to bat for me. So I always had a strong relationship with my dad because he went to bat for me in that moment. And I don't even know if I've ever even talked to my mother about that. But that, like, one moment, um, I really, really shelled off from her. And I think it also kind of caused me just to shell off from, uh, from, from women. Um, and they, they say, you know, quite often, like, the relationship you have later in life has to do with the relationship with your mother or your father. It's the reason why women date certain kinds of men and the reason why men date certain kinds of women. It has to do with that bond. And I remember just feeling so just rejected by my mom. And I just was like, fuck, man, I'm never going to let a woman do that to me again. And I remember, like, thinking that at, like, 16. Um, and that just totally drove me down the path of, like, just, like, that fierce independence where I thought that it was uh, – I thought it was me just being strong, but it was really just me being afraid. When you look back um, on the way you were parented, now you are a parent, what are the types of lessons you've taken from your own childhood that you apply in your fatherhood? I never want my kids to not feel accepted, and I never want them to not feel like he can come to me. Um, I want him to know that even if he does something completely fucking stupid or he does something just terribly wrong i want him to be able to know that he can come to me and i think if i have that that right there signifies that everything else in the relationship has been done correctly i think if you feel like you can do that with your parent you it's done right um so whether he's 17 or whether he's 40 and he just makes a mistake i wanted to know that his dad's not going to judge him and I'm just like, all right, look, how do we figure this out? Let's figure this out. Like, I want him to have that feeling of never feeling like he can't come to me. Because that's probably the feeling that I didn't have that affected me the most. Because when I was going, like, you know, say at school, like, I had, like, friends or something that I was having, like, a, an issue with. Or, you know, I, I did have a crush on a girl, and it might have ended badly, and I kind of had my feelings hurt. I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't talk to my brothers. I didn't talk to my friends. I didn't talk to my parents. I internalized all of that shit. All of my teenagers, all of my twenties, I didn't talk to anybody. Wow. Nobody knew who nobody knew about my personal life. Like my mom my mom actually, when I was I think I was twenty six or twenty seven, um, she actually pulled me aside one time at family dinner and she uh she's like, Kyle, why um why have you never brought a girl home? And I was like, I just I I don't I, I'm not serious like that. And yeah. she's like, she's like, it's, it's okay if you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm not, I told her, I was like, I'm not, mom. I just, I don't get serious with anybody. She's like, so what do you do with all these girls that you're always with? And then she goes, oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> um, but I, she got to the point, like, I didn't, no one knew my business. Like, my, my own mother, my own, like I said, my own mother questioned my sexuality because I just never let anyone know what was going on. And that, that was hard. It was hard. Like, my friends never knew what was going on. Like, I have friends that I've been really tight with since, like, our teenage years. Um, I think I have three buddies that I've been friends with for probably almost 20 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea about any of my um, depression or struggles until probably four years ago. I remember one of my buddies actually said to me, he said, he's like, you know, Kyle, I used to look up to you because I remember you were always very good at like closing doors on people. 
And I remember actually thinking one time, I think he had just been through a breakup and he was thinking like, how does Kyle do this? Because I moved a lot and I, I could like close someone off and not talk to them again like that. Um, and he was like, I don't know how Kyle can just not attach to things. I wish I was more like Kyle. And I remember telling him, I was like, dude, like it was the hardest thing ever for me. And I just told myself I had to do that. And so I just closed off to everybody. And he was like, man, I remember thinking like, he, he told me, he's like, I, either Kyle is really strong or he's really fucked up is what, <laughs> his, is what his, the answer he got to in his mind was about it. Um, but yeah, that was until like two or three years ago, he probably said that to me. And I've known him since I was 17. I think that makes sense to me only because, you know, <laughs> we're in this era where our generation is just constantly working on themselves, mm -hmm. which is, you know, why they gravitate towards writers like you. Yeah. Um, but there's this whole, you know, you need to set boundaries thing that's become very popular. Yeah. And I think people could look at someone like you at that moment in time and be like, oh, well, he's just really good at setting boundaries. Yeah, those weren't boundaries, though. They were barricades. Right. It's and a there's difference. a Yeah, there's a, big, there's a big difference. Yeah. Um, I'm probably horrible at setting boundaries now, honestly. That's probably what I need to work on more. Um, I, I, I think we have a tendency to overcorrect in life, and I think I've overcorrected a bit to where I was so closed off for a while that the past few years I've kind of gone the other direction, and now I have this whole new... Uh, style of stress in my life where I overcommit to things. Or you're like very vulnerable. Yeah, like I, like I, I overshare to people now or uh, I just, I, I, my real problem is overcommitting. Like I overcommit to things and I care about everything I get involved in. Like I said, like I care really deeply about things. And so if I agree to, to work on a project or if like I decide someone's going to be like, okay, I'm going to uh, let this friendship happen with this person, I just get really invested in them and I need to be better <laughs> Um, I need to be better at having boundaries now because I am too busy a lot of the time, especially now with like, you know, my little farm I'm setting up and my son and, you know, my family and everything. Um, so I, I'll find that happy medium, but I just haven't found it yet, I don't think. Yeah. You said that you, when you started writing, you started crying. And yeah, sometimes I do that. Yeah. Like what, what are the types of things that bring that, that type of emotion out of you? Basically, what we just talked about, um, coming to that realization that I felt very um, rejected by my my mother when she wanted to kick me out of the house was something I didn't really come to the realization until recently. Um, and stuff like that just hurts when you finally realize that moment affected a lot of my life and it caused me a lot of pain. And it's stuff like that will just hit you. And then you, f I f you feel kind of guilty. Like, I feel guilty for for almost being harsh on her in that sense. Like, did I overreact? It was something that I didn't need to, to close off so much of my life. Cause I know my mom probably wanted to be a lot more involved in my life in my twenties. And I'm sure my whole family did. Um, I just wouldn't allow it. And so I feel kind of guilty that I closed people off for so long. Did, did your wife help you be more vulnerable? Totally. Yeah, she still does. Um, it's probably still one of her biggest issues with me is that I'm not vulnerable enough at times. Really? I have an easy it's, – it's very easy for me um, to get stuck in my head, uh, particularly when I'm writing about subjects. Like when I'm writing about something, I don't want to talk about it until like I've processed it correctly. So yeah. if like I'm in the middle of like processing something for like a week, I'll just be very kind of just constantly thinking about it and shut down. Um, and like I said, it's still a happy medium I have to find.
That makes sense to me. I'm like that too in my own friendships. Yeah. Where I feel like until I've processed what I want to say. Yeah. Or like, you know, sometimes you have the conversation mm-hmm. in your head before you actually have the conversation. You're like imagining the scenario. Oh, totally. Everyone does that. And I replay it over and over again. And then I'll imagine their reaction. And I'm like, I'm not going to share that. And then so I go back and I, I try to like figure out how I want to say things because I don't want to like damage the friendship or I don't want conflict or I don't want something. So it's like, how do you, how but do how, you. I was going to, I was going to ask you, but how often do things work out much better than you feared though? Pretty often, but I think this makes me so emotional, but I think the same way, like you had pain from your relationships. My wound is the friendship wound where like I had a friend when I was 18 who just like literally distanced herself from me, cut me off from the entire friend group, and I had no friends. And I had to like just rebuild my entire friend group. And so anytime I'm like close to a friend, if there's a conflict, because I had told her, like I called her, I tried to resolve it, I was very emotional, Mm -hmm. I felt so close to her. I called her and I'm like, why don't you, I left her a voicemail, I'm like, why don't you wanna be my friend anymore? And she she got even bitchier. Girls can be very mean, yeah. especially at that I've age. heard stories. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and then so anytime there's like a, a conflict with a friend or any situation where if I imagine myself talking about it and I get emotional, I'm like, I'm not going to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like I'm even, I'm thinking of one now where like I have a friendship that I just, I will not even approach the person. I haven't talked to them in months, but they're very special to me. But because she rejected my vulnerability, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to happen again. Yeah. But what's funny is I opened your book the other day. I don't think it was speech therapy. I think it was, is this the right one? The history one? The hi- Yeah. It's, here we go. Hold on one second. This one fucking history um it was something about i don't know if i can get to it that fast but you tell was, me what it is i might be able to be, okay uh something about like bff backstabbing yeah that's exactly what the chapter is called that is right that's in speech therapy though oh okay well yeah. i i literally take your books and go back and forth yeah. like it's not it's not like a linear thing it's that's like, how they're meant to be read yeah like the, especially this book it's something that you can turn to whenever those situations happen to you that's kind of like it's not a book you read from cover to cover i mean a lot of people do when they first get it but it's meant to you go back to you like if you're dealing with that in the moment you go read those two exactly pages. so that so i know where to go mm. and i remember reading what you wrote there and it was something like you know, sometimes you get distant and then in the right moment, they'll either come back and you grow mm-hmm. strong, you know, you grow stronger than ever and the friendship is yeah. is better or sometimes you never hear from them. And then I, I read that and I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to approach this right now. But again, I'm operating a lot out of fear and I know yeah. that. But, um, but it's crazy how everything that has happened to you in your childhood, the way that it seeps into your current realities, mm-hmm. the way it triggers you, the way, like... I can't even believe something that happened to me when I was 18 years old makes me cry today at 34. I can't even believe it. I don't think many people are aware of that. I don't think, I I think the majority of people, it's probably a safe way to say it, have no idea how much their past experiences are affecting their current reality. And that's actually, I haven't told anyone this, that's actually the premise of the book I'm working on. 
the, this one or the new book William I'm working Lee. on. Okay, the one okay. that I've been pouring myself into for a year is just how much your past experiences are affecting your life now, and how we just live in this state of fear, and it just destroys um, your potential essentially. How do you move past it, though? By acknowledging it and knowing it's there in the first place. I know the this fact is, you know it's there. But I know you're a step ahead of everybody. But though. why do I keep crying? Because <laughs> you have to force yourself to get through it. At this like point, I just you have to cry. You have to make a leap. You have to make a leap. You you have to be willing to be rejected again. That's the problem. It's like everything in life. You build up um, a resilience to it the more you do it. And I think you get to a point, and once you know what your 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 fear is, if you don't face it, it's just going to grow. You're right, because I'm terrified just as you're saying that. It gets worse the more you think about it. And that's why those conversations we have in our head can be so dangerous because you make things out to be so much worse than they typically are. Like you'll think about that situation, like what happens if I confront my boss about this? And you'll sit there and think about it for a week. And then you actually do it and it'll be like easy. And you're like, what the fuck? And (laughs) and you wasted a week of feeling good, stressed out because you just weren't willing to do it. And, you know, similar to what you're going through with now, it could be months that have been spent dwelling on this that could have been resolved. And it's kind of the realization I've come to where I feel like it's, you know, you ask me why I cry sometimes when I'm writing. Um, I feel like I wasted my 20s. Like, I look back on my 20s, and there's a lot of things I love about them, but there's a lot of times that I'm just like, fuck, man. Like, I threw away a lot of years. Um, not like, a, you know, not like looking at it like where people go, oh, I threw away, you know, years of having fun. I, I had my fun. Trust me. Yeah. I, I, had, I had enough fun for 10 lifetimes. <laughs> but I look back on it, and I go, fuck, man. I, I missed out on a lot of genuine connection. I missed out on a lot of good friendships. I missed out on a lot of good conversations and times I could have had with people because I wasn't willing to connect. And it just makes me sad to think that. Yeah, it's, it is sad. And because I know there's people who did try to do that with me. Like I can think back to certain friends um, that tried to have a connection with me, and I can remember like particular conversations I had with them where I just like closed off. And I know what they were trying to do, and I think about it and go, damn, like I just feel bad that I missed that. Yeah, but it's so, so beautiful that you know about that now. Yeah, it, I have to know about it now, um, not only just as a father, but if I, I didn't, I would just – I honestly – I don't think I would still be here if I hadn't come to that realization. Like, I really don't. Um, when I think back of how, how depressed I was and how dark the world felt to me at the time, I really don't think I'd be here. And I, I – yeah, I, I wouldn't. I just know I wouldn't. And if I hadn't come to those realizations when I did, I don't think I would have pulled out of it. Wow. So, you know, depression, I've, it's different for everybody. The way that you got out of it, was it chemical or was it mostly you just having to work through it in your head? Again, Me working through it. You working through yeah. it. Because, for, look, I for avoided some, it. I ran from it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so you helped yourself work your way out of it. Yeah, and I still am helping myself. Um, I think a big misconception too with mental health is that once you're out of it, it's just like, like you're just good. Yeah. Um, no, I still have moments where I'll, I'll, I'll go into a hole. Like something will happen or I'll dwell on something too long and I have to, you know, kind of take what I learned the first time and pull myself out of it again. You have tools now. Yeah. That's the thing. I know how to use them too. Yeah. And I know what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Um, I rarely, rarely drink now. Um, 
I mean, I used to drink five or six nights a week for a, a good decade of my life, probably. Wow. And I probably drink five or six times a year now. And every time I do, I'm like, that was stupid. <laughs> um, no, if it's like the, with the right people, I think it's totally fun and worth it. But I just get hungover so easy now, Me too. too. I, I feel can. my age. Um, I used to be able to just function on no sleep. I think everyone has that point where they can do that. I just can't do that anymore, um, especially being a dad. Um, I've been hung, hung over once as a dad. Like I had a really bad hangover one time. We got a babysitter and we're like, ah, oh, we're going to go out and have some fun. <laughs> and, uh, I hadn't drank in like months and I got really hammered. I remember waking up hung over and I had to do dad duties hung over and I was like, fuck man, Can't not, do this not again. again, not again. But also it's just, I want to be there for him. Cause I think to myself, what if I'm in the state of being hung over and he hurts himself and I'm like in this weird daze to where like, I'm not there hundred percent available to help him out. And that idea scares me. Um, so it just kind of prevents a lot of that in my life. Cause I want to make sure that I'm always available for my son. That's beautiful. I think he's really lucky to have you as a dad. Yeah. I hope he feels that way. I hope he feels that way when he's older. That's kind of the goal. Yeah. 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 We'll see when he's 25, how he feels about me. Yeah. We'll check back then. Come, yeah. come back on the podcast. You'll be, you'll be on episode 21,000 or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, crazy. Being a parent must, yeah, change you in so many different ways. I'm nowhere. I'm, I mean, I could be close to that. I don't want to. I, I hope. Don't I, jinx yourself. Huh? Don't jinx yourself. No, I don't want to jinx myself, and I don't want to push it off. I think I've pushed it off long enough. Yeah. Um, I. It's. I can tell you from experience, it's uh, not as hard as you think it is. Really? Like it, it, there's stuff that like obviously is difficult. Like once you learn how to manage your time though, I feel like I'm more productive now as a father than I ever have been. Really? And I think I'm writing my best work as a father. And that was another fear of mine is that I would become a dad and I would get lame or I would get comfortable or I'd be so busy being a dad, I wouldn't be able to write. Um, but once I learned how to manage time, I just realized how much time I actually wasted before being a dad. Cause you still don't have the luxury of wasting it as much anymore. And so you have to make use of every spare hour or two you get. And so like the amount of, I'm actually working on, I think I'm, I'm working on like three books simultaneously right now, but the amount of work that I'm able to do now in the time frame, like it was un, unfeasible to me in my twenties when I felt like my career was at my peak, especially when I was working in advertising and I was busy, like busy as people like to claim they're busy. <laughs> um, and I was, I was lazy. Honestly, I was lazy compared to where I'm at now with my career. I feel the same way. Um, have you ever been to like AA or Al-Anon or anything like that? No, I hate that stuff because I feel it's too religious. A lot of people say that. A lot I can't of get past that. My, my disdain for organized religion still runs so deep um, because of just what I've seen my family experience with the Mormon church that I can't wrap my head around anything that I think takes power away from people. So, so in what way do you feel like organized religion takes power away from people? It is far more, um, I'd say it's far more shame-driven than it is empower-driven. I think the majority of people that are religious, um, they feel shame more often than they feel like genuinely wrong. They, just, they feel judged. They feel like uh, they're being watched over. Or they feel like their congregation isn't going to accept them or they're worried about what the neighbors think of them, and you know, particularly with like the AA. So I, I have a... I have a brother, and this isn't like anything I haven't shared before. My brother um, got very heavy into narcotics. And um, 
it, it's interesting. My brothers and I all eventually fell away from the Mormon church. We just did it at different time periods of our life, and we all kind of, you know, dealt with it differently. Um, but my, my younger brother got really heavy into narcotics for about a decade, and he did, like, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and all that stuff. And hearing the way he would talk about it would upset me because it's like, do you understand they're just making you feel even worse for what How, you've though? done? Because I, I have friends who are in it, and I find this stuff to be helpful, but I want to hear your... If it's helpful to them, yeah. But I just think my little brother, he it, it's... It's not empowering him in the sense that he can get through it himself, which I be- strongly believe he can. He has this idea that, like, I can only get through it if I go to my meeting every Tuesday. Or I can only get through it if I check in with my sponsor. And so now he's dependent upon a whole different st- belief structure other than just doing it for himself. And that's my issue with it. As I, and if it helps people, awesome. I'm not knocking it. I am kind of knocking it, but if it, help, <laughs> if it helps you good, but I just feel like anything that doesn't tell you you can do it on your own if you really want to put the work in, it's not going to be easier. It's going to be hard. Anything that doesn't instill that kind of power in you, I think is uh, harmful. I, I hear your point there. I think the things that I've seen from it, and maybe it's just the way that it operates that maybe shouldn't be religious or you know, maybe they shouldn't make people feel like you need a sponsor forever or whatever. It feels like a cult to me. Okay, so, I mean, I get that. I just feel like there's some stuff that they teach people. And I know because I have friends that are in Al-Anon, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll be going through something and they're like, hey, I actually learned this exercise in Al-Anon. Um, it's a resentment exercise. And they walk me through it. And by the time I'm done, I'm like, holy shit, why hasn't anyone told me this? Like, not Mm. even a therapist has told me this. And it it has nothing to do, like, she's not my sponsor, she's a friend, and she helped me through one situation. Well, I think what I'm trying to say is you can get all that without Alcoholics Anonymous. All that exists in books. Oh, yeah. All that exists in books. I hear you, but here's, here's why I think that works, and maybe there's another way to do it. Mm. But the need for belonging, sense yeah. of belonging, is runs so deep in all of us. Like, think about it. You didn't. You felt so different than these Mormons you yeah. grew up with, and you know, I felt different from a, you know a lot of Persian Jews that I grew up with, or or whatever it was. Even though I'm still kind of part of that community, mm-hmm. um, you feel different. But there needs to be a place that you can go where you can walk into a room and feel like, you know, people love me and are curious about my life and want to celebrate my wins with me and want to, you know, help me through the hard times. And I feel like that in that sense, the environment of AA helps people. If you take out, I guess, the cultish aspects of it, mm-hmm. I think that's why it has worked for people. And I know so many people who are like, this changed my life because they didn't have a sense of belonging or community anywhere else. So it's like, I think about this all the time because I agree. I think you are the person who can change your life. I think yeah. you've even written about this. Yeah, many times. Yeah, you are the person <laughs> that can change your life. And I, and I wish more people would would say that openly. You know, again, you know how I feel about politics. We're on the same page. It There's no sides. I, I think <laughs> like, I totally understand where you're getting with that, and that's why we do need to connect and have friends, which has kind of been this whole conversation. But a good example of what I'm talking about is – the movie Fight Club, where I think it's Edward Norton's main character goes to all the different support groups because he's so desperately trying to belong in something because he's running from himself. 
And that's where I have an issue with it because I think I know what my little brother was going through at the time because I, will, I felt it myself because we've talked about it now. Um, and it was that feeling like of not belonging once we left the Mormon church that kind of, you know, sent him down his own spiral of drug use. Um, but there is something very dangerous in constantly seeking to belong somewhere. I know we all crave it and need it, but if you can't be with yourself, you're you're setting yourself up just for a crash. Like some at some point, you're gonna be with yourself. Like no matter what you're a part of, you need to be prepared for that. And that's where I'm all about trying to empower people. Um, and th- that's my issue with those programs. They just I'm sure there's like times where. I mean, it's almost like something like if you use it for a year until you learn the right tools, and then you can, you know, kind of not go as often. But I just feel like, from what I've heard and what I've seen, people just—it's almost like you trade one addiction for another. Like you used to be addicted to alcohol, now you're just addicted to likes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You're just addicted to uh, to sitting around and sharing stories, and you know, having sad times with these other people that are going through hardships with you. And people get addicted to all sorts of weird stuff. And I, I think that's just what it feels like to me. It just feels almost like you're replacing one obsession with another obsession rather than focusing on what you can do to not feel the need to have that obsession in the first place. What's your, percep- what's your perception of happiness and suffering? Well, I think they're both related, totally. Um, I think there's a big push right now you, you see this a lot online where people say, you know, you have to uh, you have to suffer in order to be happy. And I think what they're getting at there is the most rewarding things in life are things you have to work for. You know, anything worth having is hard. Um, and so I, I do believe, and I have written this before, that if to get as happy as you can possibly get, you have to be willing to do hard shit. Um, and that's where I take big issue, and I always have. And I think is what you're talking about online where I've always kind of been counterculture in that sense is I've always rejected this idea of me time. And I've always spoken out this like canceling plans and self-care Sundays. And I've always kind of talked shit on those because <laughs> I feel like people get addicted to that in the sense that they convince themselves they're going to be happy by avoiding all responsibility. But truthfully, from my own experience, trust me, I lived a lot of years avoiding responsibility. And I lived a lifestyle that I think most people – would consider the dream. I mean, when I came out about my my depression, I had a lot of men write me thousands of messages saying like I thought you were living like the life. Like from the outside looking in, I was like this guy's the man and they all wanted to be like me and I can say from experience the best you're ever going to feel is dedicating yourself to something that requires you to put in a lot of fucking work, whether that's a relationship or a family or a career. Um if you want to be happy, you have to suffer because it's just that whole, you know, you can get into like the, the Huberman side of things. They talk about like the dopamine and all that. Like you just have to be bored. Nothing you do like nothing, nothing feels as good as working for something and achieving it. Like you'll never, you'll never take a drug. You'll never have a spa day and you'll never have a me night where you're cuddling or a blanket. That's going to feel half as good as working for something that you busted your ass for and watching it work. It just, you'll nothing will ever compare to that. It's true. Um, 
I want to talk about your book, William is a Weirdo, because I think it really nicely t- ties into everything that we've been talking about. But it's a children's book. It's my debut children's book. Which I love yeah. because I feel I always think about all of the stuff that we talk about. It's and and it's like a lot of us have suffered until we got to the point where we're like, holy shit, I need perspective or I need to read like someone's autobiography mm-hmm. and, and you know learn about what they've done and the mistakes they've made because you know I you know, I want to go down the right path. You know th- that's where you get yeah. where you're like, okay, I'm gonna follow this guy and this guy and this guy and this girl and you know figure out my life. I think that's what happens to people when they start looking for answers, but. It would be nice if we could learn a lot of these things earlier at a young age, which is what I love, that, you're ha- that you have a children's book. Um, what is the premise of this book and what are you trying to say with it? What are you trying to teach? I, I think kind of the theme, like you said, we talked about this whole thing is our, our sense of belonging, our desire to belong. Um, and we see it happen probably now more than ever is people just compromise who they are just to belong to something. And it starts at a young age. I think it starts when you're a kid and you get bullied or picked on and you start changing who you are just because you want your classmates to accept you or you want your neighbors to accept you or you want your parents to be happy with you. Um, And so the premise of this book is it's about a kid named William. He's, He's a weirdo. And, uh, he doesn't have friends because of it. He has a hard time making friends. But he just does the things that make him happy. And in the end of it, he realizes, you know, he's just happier when he does his own thing. You know, he doesn't need people to accept him in order to, to be happy because he enjoys what he does, even though other kids might think it's weird. And when you think about that, when we're kids, we don't know we're weird until someone tells us we're weird. Like if no one ever told you and you just did naturally what you were drawn to as a child and you had the hobbies and interests that you wanted to and no one told you that was weird, your life would probably be different now than it was. Because at some point someone's going to tell us we're weird, someone's going to tell us we're, we're, we're stupid or someone's going to tell us you know we're this or that and we're going to change the things we're naturally drawn to to fit in. And... I want nothing more than for my own son to be his own little weirdo in the sense that like if he does things that other kids don't agree with or he does things that are different, if he's happy doing it, I want him to feel like he can keep doing those. And so I've actually tried since writing this book to, you know, the the taboo word in my language now is weirdo. Um, I try not to call people weirdos anymore Um, because when I was writing this book, I realized just how often I look at people and go, man, what a fucking weirdo. but they're not. They're just kind of they're just being who they are, you know. Um, I do think there's a lot of fake weird in society right now. I think it's pretty easy to identify people that are trying to do things just to get attention. Like? Um, you can just look at anyone that's trying to do something outlandish. I mean, it's stuff I was doing in my 20s, you know, trying to do stuff to get people to look at you different. Just the way certain people dress, the way certain people act. You can tell. You can. It's just one of those things where you can just tell it's not authentic. Like you can sense when someone's just trying to be weird, yeah, just to get attention. You can sense it. It's it's hard to describe it, but we all know when it's happening. Um, I think there's a lot of that now with social media, but then there's those people that are genuinely just different. And I look at some of those people, and I know in the past I've called those people weirdos, and I try not to anymore. Um, so that's really what the book is: is encouraging 
you know, the power of not fitting in. And I feel like anyone who's ever done something really successful in their life did so because they didn't fit in. Um, my own career is an example of, of not fitting in and doing things differently. Um, and I just want to instill that in my son, but also a lot of, I think a lot of adults are going to read this book and realize, oh shit, like I need to, I need to stop doing this myself. I think it's just as much for uh, the children as it is for the parents who read it to them. And it, the cool thing about it is it was illustrated by my father. So my dad oh and I did this God. together. Um, like I said, I grew up in a very creative household. My mom was always encouraging me to read and stuff. And I think that's probably why that rejection from my mother was so hard for me in my teenage years. Because growing up, like, my mom was, like, my best friend because we read all the time together. Um, she bought me, like, all the illustrated classics. So I was reading. I read Mark Twain, and I read Count of Monte Cristo, and I read, you know, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read all these classics because of my mom. Um, she would buy them for me and encourage me to read them. And so we always had that really tight bond of uh, – we, we enjoyed reading and storytelling, and we enjoyed, you know, kind of uh, these worlds we could we could travel to together through books. And so when when she rejected me that in my teenage years, I think that's why it hit me so hard because I kind of felt like she, she turned her back on me. And so I had this really good bond with my parents growing up. My dad was an illustrator, so my mom was really into reading. My dad's always been an artist his whole life, and so he's always made a living. Um, the whole reason, like, I really got into heavy metal music and rock is because my dad always had his art studio at home, and he would always be working from home, and I'd go sit in my dad's art studio, and he'd give me, like, a color pencil and some paper, and I would draw on my table while he would work on his for whatever book he was currently working on, and uh, he would listen to, like, Led Zeppelin and Van Halen and Pink Floyd and Peter Frampton, and, uh, you know, my dad was the one who introduced me to Rage Against the Machine and, like, Rob Zombie. Like, I heard about all those through my dad. Like, I remember I was, like, 10 or 11, and my dad had a White Zombie CD, and he introduced me to White Zombie and, like, Smashing Pumpkins. I remember thinking, like, man, these bands are fucking sick. Um, so I've always had, like, that cool, creative connection with my parents. And so when I, when I wanted to do this book, it, there's no one I wanted to do it other than my dad. I was like, we have to do this book together. Like, and so it's cool because he illustrated it, and it just feels – you know, whether the book's a success or not, I do feel like it's going to do fairly well. It's just something that him and I have been able to uh, to create together, and we haven't ever done that before. Like my other books, for example, they have illustrations in them, but I didn't have my dad do the illustrations. Um, <laughs> I had I had like friends of mine do the illustrations. These, and, yeah, my friend did all those. Okay. Um, partially because a lot of the illustrations are crass and crude, and I didn't think my dad would draw them. Um, and so I just I've never done a project with my father before. I love this. That's Your a past. good. Story. That's a good story. I don't think I've I've read this one, but I like the image of your you'll past. Dig that, you'll dig on, that one. On fire. Yeah. Okay, then I'm just gonna. It's a story about a, a woman who became the most powerful female in the uh, empire, who started out as a, a stage actress, and uh, within like a matter of years, she was the most influential person in the world. And you can tell I want influence and power. Abs- absolutely, everyone does. <laughs> I mean, you had Robert Greene on, so obviously you do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's William. That's kind of the idea behind that book. I love that, and I want to read it. And oh. I'm not a child. Well, I'm, so. leaving, I'm leaving you copies. So yeah. you can do that. I'm I'm really excited. Um, are your parents proud of you? I would imagine so. I mean, I got a great relationship with them now. Um, there's probably even things I've said on this podcast today they've never heard me say. Uh, my dad listens to all my podcasts, so it'll get relayed to my mom through that most likely. Hey, Christopher Creek. Yeah, exactly. My, <laughs> my dad will listen to this. Um, and I know there's stuff in the book that is going to be hard for them to read. 
um, which is good because it was hard for me to write. I think it should be. Um, but I, I would, I, I know they are. I mean, I know the way they act about it now and the way they, they talk about it now. Like I've been out to dinner with them before when people have come over and wanted to like take a photo with me and my mom will get kind of bashful and she'll be like, that just happened. Like, they, <laughs> um, yeah, it's fun. We got a, we got a good thing going now, especially now that I'm a, I'm a father. I see them just really leaning into being grandparents and stuff and it's cool. I'm actually yeah. trying to move them out to, you know, like down the street from me, hopefully, so they can be more involved. Yeah, I know that, that. Well, they still live in Utah. I live across the country now. It's like, oh man, they've only. I think they've only seen. They haven't seen my son in over a year. Um, it's like every time I've tried to get home, something has happened. They were supposed to come out and visit, and then my dad got a full knee replacement, and then they're, I was supposed to go see them, and my mom broke both her ankles. Like, there's just things just keep happening. And so I was like, man, you guys just got to live close. Like, we got to move you down the street. I think that's the move. That's the, that's the plan. I think that's the move. Um, what's your take on politics? Because we talked earlier, and you said a lot of your fans will be like, well, what side are you on? I think the two-party system is complete bullshit. I think the fact that you have to choose one or only two options is wrong, and – I think the majority of people fall in the middle, but they're afraid to admit it. Um, I think it goes right back to what we've talked about, that sense of belonging. Um, when you feel like you're in a group and one of your ideas is going to put you on the outskirts of that group, it's scary. So a lot of people just hide their ideas or they pretend they believe something they don't. And I, I have a hard time believing that most people are 100% into either camp. I think most yeah. people fall in the middle, but they're afraid to admit they fall in the middle. Like, they're afraid to admit that they can agree on one issue and disagree on another. And so, like, during, like, you know, 2020 through 2022, and it was really, really embedded into everyone to be tribal against each other, is when I had a lot of people commenting, saying, like, I can't tell who you support, and why is that? And it's like, because I don't support either of them. I don't support either party. Um, I agree with issues on both sides because I'm a human. And I feel like you should do the same thing. So I have chosen a side, and the side I've chosen is the side of people. Um, I, I truly believe it's us against them. Like, that really is how my mentality is with it. I think there's a, a, a bunch of elites that are out of touch with the world and they're out of touch with the everyday person. And I think we need to view um, our communities and our neighbors as our, our allies more than anything. Um, it's, it's wild to me how quickly people are willing to step on their neighbor's neck and then the next minute they'll turn around and defend a politician who doesn't give a fuck about them. Thank you. It's that hard is my, to see that. That's, that's the issue. Because I, I really don't think – I truly believe the vast majority of them don't give a fuck about They us. don't. And they really don't. Yes. And, and that it, – yeah. it goes back to what you said. Sorry to cut you off. That's I'm just fine. so passionate about this, and I know that you talk about this. It goes back – to that whole thing that it's like you're you're the only person who can save yourself uh -huh. and to rely on politicians or to believe that some president is going to solve all your problems just because they're out there giving speeches about this shit because they want to win it's not going to happen no. dude and i always think about how passionate people are on twitter or x or threads or where, whatever social media platform you can find and i've had friends that are big, you know, big voices um, in politics who have stepped aside recently and they're like, I was in a cult. Literally, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll, I have someone coming on who's going to come and like awesome. drop that bomb like here. That. Yeah, because... It very much is a cult. It very much is. It, either side. Mm -hmm. Either side. I agree. That's what so, I'm saying. Two, the, the idea that you have to choose between two sides is asinine. 
It's, it's like imagine so if you went through stupid. your whole life. What if your whole life you only had two choices of car, two choices of food, two choices of who you're going to date? If that's all you had your whole life was two choices. And you believe those things are going to save yeah. you? They're not. But now, like, you're putting, like, some of the most powerful I- ideologies into just two choices. It's, it's like, humans and community in, in particular are so complex. And there's so many factors at play in everything that kind of happens to us in our daily lives. Um, you know, when you put, you pack 11 million people into a couple square miles, like New York, for example, and you really think you're just going to create one structure that's going to work for everyone, it's just not going to happen. Um, there, there, need, there needs to be middle ground or there needs to be a lot more discussion than has happened. And I sadly don't see it happening. I kind of feel like we're so far down a path. Something's going to have to implode in order for it to kind of reset itself. I just don't know what that implosion is going to be. I think the message that's lost on people is there is no one size fits all. Yeah. And they're trying to make it seem mm-hmm. like there is. Because there's power to doing that. Right. You're easy to control when you can be corralled into two different things. A hundred percent. But what worked for one person may not work for you. Yeah. So my whole thing is if you're a young person, and I, I am – I have an emphasis on younger people the same way you do. It's easier to teach them as they're growing mm. versus, you know, getting adults to unlearn everything. That It's bo- both worthwhile endeavors completely. But when I think about young people or think about how much pain we endured as kids that could have been prevented if we just had, you know, the right mm-hmm. guides or the right information. And to take a human being and to be like, look – you're either going to vote for this person or this person, and you should pay attention to politics. It infuriates me because all of that time they spent online fighting with people, and you know how much time they're spending in the comments. It's, it's, it's out there. Yeah. These people are enraged, and they're incentivized to be that way. But instead, to be like, look, there are people out there who can help you in your relationships. They can help you navigate conflicts. They can help you learn about AI. They can help you learn about this, about that. There are so many subject matter experts who devote their lives to things that you could learn about that'll change the trajectory of your life. But instead, you're focusing on politicians mm-hmm. and freaking out over who you're going to vote for. The fuck out of here. That's how I feel. I agree. Right? I think a lot of people just, it's like you said, they want to belong so badly. And also, um, like, like I said earlier, we get addicted to weird things. So many people are addicted to outrage now because it's just yeah. an easy emotion to go to. And you can get into like the science of it, but your brain you know, rewires itself to the neurons that you frequent most often. And people that so quickly go to rage and so are, are addicted to like this kind of behavior, like it really becomes something that you have to unwire over time. Like people are so addicted to these quick responses and they feel validated when other people are angry with them. It's, it's just, it's odd. It's really odd. I mean, my, my girlfriend and I talk about this often where we'll just think, man, I, I kind of feel like society peaked in like 2013, like 2013, like social media was kind of popular, but you still kind of had your privacy. It was fun. Yeah. Like the jokes online were really good. Like people had a sense of humor and it just kind of seemed like people, but really like 2016, um, is when like you saw the sense of humor, the collective sense of humor just dive bomb. And then by 2020, it was like, I didn't want to be on social media. Like I actually don't really want to be on social media much these days anyway. Um, I had to like actively remind myself to still participate in it because I just so I'm over it. I don't like what it's become. Yeah. You don't post that much. I used to post every day. Like, I remember. I, and now I'm like, I think I've posted like 20 times in the last year, maybe. 
Um, I just I, I have a hard time willing to participate in it because I do feel like it is so detrimental. And take it from someone who's my essentially, you know, my whole career is built on social media. It's been very beneficial to me, and I've it's I'm grateful to have had it when I did because I don't know that I would have found as large of a voice for my writing as quickly as I did. I think eventually I might have got there, but it might have been like a 20-year journey. Um, I'm a lot happier when I'm not involved in social media. I kind of hate when I have to – I was like, oh, fuck, I got a book release coming up, and I'll be like, oh, I got to start like participating again. I got to promote things, and I just – I don't like it. Is the response from social media not – I mean, of course, everyone has their critics, but is yours – do you find that you're – the response from your audience, fans, whatever you want to call them, is it mostly positive? It's 50-50. It depends. I mean... Because you refer to yourself as controversial. I, to me, I used I to be a lot more. I don't see you that way because yeah. I, I read your stuff and, and I'm just like, I agree. I, I'm, I don't know. I feel I, I, I totally relate to the you writing I to think, you. I think most creativity should be controversial. I think it should uh, it shouldn't appeal to everyone. Um, I think when you're trying to like one size fits all, like you said earlier with your work, it's it's usually watered down. Yeah. And so the fact that you identify so strongly with it just kind of reaffirms the fact that I am being authentic with it. Because there's people on the other side of it that that hate it just as much as you like it. Um, like I've lost a lot of followers this year. I think probably this year is probably. Like, one of the first years, like, I've watched my follower account just constantly drop. I, I saw you liked a post by, I think the account is Inspired to Write. I know the post you're talking about. Yep. I actually commented on that. Yeah, I, lo- I loved it where she talks <laughs> about true, how, though. yeah, she talks yeah. about how she lost, like, 20,000 yeah. followers. And she's like, here's why that's a good thing. Yeah. And she went she went on and on about that. And I'm like, that's so true. Your, your art, your creativity, your expression, it's not meant to be consumed by everybody. It's funny because in the original days of Twitter, I used, and it, when I first started using Instagram, I used to tell my buddies this. I can tell I wrote something good because I lose more people than I gain. And that, that was 2013 is like really how I based my work. I was like, if, if 100 people unfollow me, at the time I had a couple thousand followers, like if 100 people unfollow me, this is a good post. Um, and I used to try and lose followers every time. And then it kind of got to the point where everyone just kind of gets addicted to like watching the notch tick higher and higher. Um, and then I would lose a bunch of followers, and I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I had to, like, remind myself that that's kind of what I was trying to do from the get-go. And, like, yeah, like, this past year, I mean, I've, fuck, I've probably lost 20, 20, 30,000. Easy. I haven't really looked at the number, but I know I've lost a lot. Yeah. Because um, I'll occasionally go check. I'm like, fuck, I had a lot more last month. Yeah. Um, it, I think it could be because I'm not as active. But also I think a lot of people just, you know, they grow out of things. And that's fine. I think certain people might not resonate with my stuff like they used to. They might be at a different phase in their life where they don't feel like they need it or they just disagree with me now. And I know I lost a lot of people during the COVID years because of my political views. Um, but what what I was telling people views? to question the media. I was telling people to not trust, you know, the politicians. I was telling people to think for themselves. I was telling people to to not turn on their neighbors and I was you know, I was telling people, like, you know, I said, like, you know, you can do whatever you want to do in life, but just keep in mind, like, if we lose the ability to choose, like, we're all going to lose. Like, there should, should still be a choice about this stuff. And people would go off on me. They'd be so mad. Um, I lost I – would, I, would I would lose huge chunks of followers sometimes. Um, I, I took a road trip across the country. I drove from uh, 
from Vegas to Miami and I drove all along the South and I stopped in New Orleans and I stopped in like a couple places in Texas and Tallahassee and I stopped in these little areas and uh, it was during the, the height of like the coming out of the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything was still kind of like ghost towny. And I remember just talking with people and it just kind of reaffirmed or I'd say it reignited my faith in humanity because during that time it was like when everyone's just kind of against each other. And I just I would just go to restaurants and they'd be like empty, but I'd have a really good conversation with my server or I'd talk with like the hotel attendant that checked me and I'd have really good conversations with them. And I wrote a post about it and I, I, I posted like, I showed the map that I just drove and I said, hey, I just stopped in all these cities and I just want you guys to know like America is more united than they're they're making it out to be right now in the news. Like I just spent 10 days driving across the country and even though right now it seems like everything's hell and it's, it's, you know, falling apart. Like, I just want to let you know, like people are good out there. Like if you go out there and talk with people, they're still good. And people were pissed at that message. Like I had people going off on me, uh, saying stuff like, uh, Oh, you only had that experience because you're a tall white man. Or like you only had that experience because, um, you know, of who you are. You only had that experience because of this. They're just they were trying to find reasons to believe that America was was worse than it was. And that was when I was like, whoa, this is a fucking problem. It is. Like people are looking for reasons to hate each other now. And it, it blew my mind the stuff that was considered controversial during that time period. Yeah, and then people wonder why we have really high rates of loneliness and depression. Yeah, mental health right now is terrible. terrible. I mean, I, I wrote something last week, I think it was. I wrote something saying, you know, with everyone being pushed towards, like, fake everything, like, you know, you got, like, all these fake processed foods, you got, like, these fake meats, you got, like, artificial intelligence being used as creativity, and you got these fake digital connections, and you got people marrying, like, AI girlfriends, and, like, it, it, all this. And I, I wrote something like... uh the more we're pushed towards fake, the easier it is for us to break. And, you know, just so you know, like, if you're worried about your mental health, health, you can't replace these things. Like, you need genuine connection. You need real creativity. You need to be eating, like, good food. And people were pissed. I lost a lot of followers last week just off that post because people are like, oh, well, you're just, you know, they thought I was, like, demonizing, like, veganism or vegetarian diets because I specifically said fake meat. And I was like, you go, go to the grocery store. Look at a package of this fake meat that's 47. Or oat milk. Yeah, that's 47 ingredients in it. Yeah. Look at how many of those ingredients have been proven to cause, like, neurological disorders. Or, or they're carcinogens, and, quite frankly. And tell me those aren't affecting people negatively. Or look at someone who has an AI girlfriend who spends their whole life gaming and sitting behind a computer watching porn and tell me they don't have mental health issues. You know, the, all this fake stuff we're being driven towards. Or, you know, look at uh, look at art created by, you know, chat GPT or the fuck it's called. Um, I can't stand AI in the use of creativity. I think you can look at it and it just lacks soul. And it's like so easy to look at it and be like, this just doesn't feel right. Um, you can't tell me that you can go through, go through um, like a cathedral in, a, in like Paris, for example. And look at the portraits that were painted there. And look at the artwork that was put into sculpting every little sconce and light fixture in there. And tell me that isn't more inspirational than a piece of art created by AI. 
And this is what I was trying to tell people. I was like, the real thing is always going to be better for you, and it's what humans need. Um, I'm really into architecture. I always have been. And there's accounts I follow now that kind of talk about how this whole dr- uh, drive towards, like, modern, like, straight angles and stuff and just, like, really sleek design, um, how much it has an effect on your mental health versus if you live somewhere where you can walk around and see, like, dome structures and original cathedrals and Gothic, you know, architecture and just the unique shapes, how much better it is for your brain. Um, and I like seeing people take a stance on that because it's funny. Even when I lived in New York, I always referred to my apartment as human storage because it felt – like this scene in the matrix where Neo wakes up and he's in the pod and he looks out and sees them all over because I lived in a sky rise in Manhattan. I had like 50 floors or something. And I remember just looking out at the other buildings. And I, every time I did that, I just thought of that scene in the matrix. And I remember thinking, I, I, I can't live in New York forever. Like it was great at the time. It was fun. It was good for my career. Um, but just the idea of that being your life, I just think it lends itself towards uh, towards depression. I really do. I believe that. You know, there's a lot of people who say New York's the loneliest city in the world, and there's like there's like people coming out talking. I have friends that'll tell me, you know, they've never felt as lonely as they did when they moved to New York City, and they moved to New York City thinking it was going to be the exact opposite because you're so surrounded. But there's something about feeling isolated uh, um, among 11 million people, whatever the population is, that just makes you feel a hell of a lot worse. Um, but we could talk about all sorts of different things, but really like the point is all this fake crap that people are being driven towards and they're replacing the real in their lives with it. I just, I don't see it being sustainable. And I hope we see more people take a stance or take a step back and try to get, appreciate the real things. Um, I mean, at the hotel I'm staying at here in LA, we ordered some towels to our room and a robot sent them up. Comes what? Up, yeah, comes up in a robot and like you open the door and the robot like beeps at you and it, you push <laughs> a button and it, it hands you the towels and it asks how your stay is. And then if you say your stay is good, like it, it makes a cheery noise and it does like a spin for you. You didn't tip the robot, did you? No, hell no. Um, <laughs> but I, my girlfriend and I had the same reaction to it. We're just like, this is fucked up. Like this, And it's funny because then we saw a guy in the elevator and he's like, did you see that robot? And I was like, yeah, we just ordered towels and that's how they sent it. And he's like, that's someone's job. He's like, that's not right. Like, what? He's like, and I told him, I said, honestly, if I was the hotel staff, I wouldn't be supporting that robot because they are trying to replace you with those things. Um, but there's just something about. And then I ordered, I ordered a coffee, and they sent coffee up in the robot. <laughs> they put, they put, they put, they put it in the little. It has a little, you know, shelf that holds things, and. <laughs> you, you can't tell me that's a better experience than having like an individual actually come hand you a towel and ask how your stay is or have like someone come up and hand you a coffee and, you know, you, you thank a person for it. Um, I think as a kid, there's probably like a little novelty element where you're just like, oh, cool, it's a robot. <laughs> um, but if that's the future we're going towards, like, fuck, man, I don't want to I don't want to order coffee from a robot. I can't even process what you just told me. This like, is right I- here. This is right here in L.A. There's several. Um, hotels now that have these robots. I didn't know that that I was... Can, ha- I can't remember what they're called, but I'll, I'll send you a link to them. I've seen them before. I've just never stayed in a hotel that had them. Okay, I've seen I've seen little things on the streets that deliver food. I've heard about those. Those I've seen, but not not room service. They're like they're like butler robots that hotels are using, and they're oh using it God. to replace a job. That's, that's, that's why insane. They're, you can't tell me they're using it for any other reason. No, that's insane to me. Yeah. 
Um, and it's just weird. It's just beeps. And, like, you know it's recording you. There's no way that thing doesn't have a camera on it. So it's probably recording your interaction with it. And it's just odd when you think about it. Oh, that's so uncomfortable. It is. It's very weird. It makes you not want to order anything. It, 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 I, will, I won't stay at the hotel again. I won't tell you what the name of the hotel is. I don't want to bash them. But I won't stay there again because of that. It just, it just feels it – feels, it's just too odd. Yeah, well, when we put this out, I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> people will get the message. Um, I'm sure you get a lot of messages, like, asking for advice and stuff. That's just, like, the nature. It's par for the course. Yeah, for sure. it's par for the course. What do you feel like – what do you feel like people are, are most concerned about? Or what do you – like, what kind of messages are you getting mostly? Is it, like, men – who feel lonely or, you know, women who want relationship advice. Like, what what do you see a lot of? It's changed as my work has changed. Um, years ago, I used to mostly get relationship stuff because I was single and dating at the time. So I, had a lot of, I wrote about relationship stuff a lot. Um, now I primarily get mental health stuff um, because I was very open about my own mental health struggle. And so I get a lot of people asking me how they can get through it. And I'd say the other side of it now is a lot of people asking how they can have um, hard conversations. Like people are always asking me, how can I tell my significant other I disagree with them politically? Or how can I have this conversation with, with my mom? Because they'll, they'll fill me in on like this paragraph long conversation that happened at dinner and be like, how do I express myself and let her know that's not what I want for my life? Um, I'd say that's probably the, the, the large portion of it now is people, I think lo- a lot of it is people need, um, they're looking for reassurance. They're almost looking for, like they're unsure if what they feel is right and they kind of need me to validate them and be like, it's okay to have that conversation. And I think it's largely because the past couple of years everyone has felt very suppressed. Um, People have been very scared to share opinions for being labeled something you're not or being, you know, canceled. And so I think probably the worst issue right now that we're dealing with in society is is people not being themselves because they're afraid to be. And that's kind of why I feel the William is a Weirdo book is so important. I mean, obviously it's not about, you know, having arguments or stuff like that, but... I think people have lost the ability to be themselves. They're so fucking scared of being labeled something. They're so scared of being ganged up on. And people just don't have genuine conversations. And I, I said this on another podcast one time. Probably the biggest recipe for depression is self-suppression. Like when you hide who you are, which is essentially what I was doing for many years. I was you know, portraying a character at times. And whether you're hiding who you are through your actions or you're hiding who you are by not expressing your true opinions or feelings to people, that's going to make you depressed more than anything because your whole life's a fucking lie. And any success you do achieve, you're going to question because you know you're being fake. Um, I know a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome, and I know it's a very real thing, but I think a lot of people bring imposter syndrome on themselves, on themselves because they're fake. And they know they're being fake. And so they get a bunch of attention for it, and they question that attention because they rightfully should because they got it being something they're not. Um, yeah, I don't remember what your question is, but 
I think that's probably the biggest issue is people just being afraid to be who they are. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just asking what questions you get a lot or what types of what you know what. So types yeah, of, that's I, I get yeah. a lot. I get a lot of people asking for help expressing their opinions and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I completely relate to that, and I've also been canceled, you know, which was its own experience. You have to choose to be canceled. Yeah, that's true. That. That's, true. You, that's true. That's you, true. That's true. You have you literally have to. Allow yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Like yeah, um, I think. I think in certain arenas like Hollywood, I, I think certain people have gotten canceled only in the sense that like, yeah, they, they, they either go to jail or they choose not to, you know, express themselves anymore because, you know, the yeah. tribe doesn't. But I think you're right. If you do, if you do, there's always a place that you can voice your opinion and express things and be yourself. I mean, you even see like actual criminals have shows made about them and like they're able to you have you know. criminals that get out of jail and have like modeling careers and shit now i mean there's people there's, <laughs> yeah, there's people who do like really horrible things and still have careers about it because they never gave up on themselves yeah and that's how you get canceled for the most part is you give up on yourself i mean i wrote about in speech therapy like one of the subjects in there is how to deal with being canceled um what was your advice i think if you genuinely feel sorry about it you should apologize but only if you actually regret what you did don't be pressured into it yeah if you don't feel sorry for it don't apologize because that's fake again Oof. you're being fake yeah you should only apologize if you actually really are remorseful and you should dress it once and, that's and if it. you don't feel sorry about it don't say keep, anything just keep fucking doing your thing don't even address it i don't wish. don't even don't even acknowledge the fact people are trying to cancel you don't acknowledge the fact people are upset just keep doing your thing and guess what within 72 hours people are going to be on to something else that's the best advice and I wish that I talked to you before my one of my sponsors called me and told me I needed to make an apology because I wasn't sorry and then I got memed after I apologized. Are you okay talking about it? Because I don't even know what the story is. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, 100%. This is actually the first time I'm talking about Ooh. it publicly. Oh, well, we got good stuff. So I became big as an NFT personality in the crypto space. Mm -hmm. um, I was on Clubhouse, there was a bunch of NFT rooms, I was mingling with artists, um, I had a friend move to Twitter as Clubhouse was dying down, he was doing tons of NFT. Uh, it's like NFT, like Bored Ape kind of stuff? Yes. Okay. Okay, but there was, I, I don't know if you remember, there was a ton of money from venture capital going into oh, these Web3 <laughs> businesses. Yeah. And I had, you know, a, a really good reputation. To be honest, I still do just, I'll tell you what happened here. Um, I, I associated with a lot of, you know, relevant people. I was known as an interviewer. Um, I have a pretty conservative appeal. You know, I'm not like posting bikini photos all the yeah. time or anything. So it was very easy for me to get brand deals. And uh, it was very male dominated. So I stood out mm. and I was making money left and right. Um, so what do you mean like brand deals? Like you'd promote like certain like, NFT collections? Yeah, like I, I would host rooms for collections. Oh, okay, okay. I, so I would, it's I would like interview. Someone was going to drop a new NFT collection. You'd be like the host of the Yeah, they'd the come event. to me and be like, hey, you okay. know, could you interview us? And I was, I was always really, really careful um, about telling them, look, I can't promote it. I can ask you questions that lead you into the talking points, but I'm not going to be like, oh, this is the best Yeah, because then you drop get to like ever. financial issues. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was always careful about that. Then I started getting brand deals from these bigger companies. I got this started out, this podcast started with a sponsorship 
uh, from a really big crypto company, which I told them right away. I'm like, this podcast, and thank God, I'm like, it's not going to be a crypto podcast. I like interviewing authors. That's me. Mm. And they're like, yeah, that's fine, because they want they want to reach the masses yeah, yeah. anyway. Otherwise, you know, we're all in the same community, and it's everyone knows about that company. So what happened was um, I'm friends with the founder of Dogecoin, Billy Marcus, and he he basically sold uh, his Doge before Elon pumped it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Could have been a billionaire and didn't make all the money. He has he has a job. He does well. Um, but he had a an NFT collection that he didn't release. And I'm like, oh, my God, just release it. Like, let's make money. And he's like, no, I don't really want to. Like, people got so mad about the Dogecoin thing. I don't want to, like, charge people. And was I'm it like, a Doge NFT collection? Yeah, it was called Blocky Doge. And he had released other ones, and mm-hmm. they did relatively well. This was called Blocky Doge 3. And I was like, okay, well, let's just release it as a free mint. What does and that mean? It, it means it means it's free to mint, but the floor price will start escalating as demand goes up for the project and there's more hype. Um, and so basically I was helping him promote it, arranging the room, stuff like that. And, uh, and basically, what happened? I'm trying to think of like where, where it started to go wrong and, and what ended up happening. So, so I, I was talking about that NFT project in some of, some of the Twitter spaces. And there was one in particular um, that a couple of my friends hosted. And I had asked them, you know, if they wanted to talk to him because, you know, frankly, a lot of people wanted to talk to the founder of Dogecoin. And I'm oh, like, totally. okay, let me, let, me, let me give this one to my friends. And he, he wasn't even trying to talk about the project for a majority of the time. He just talked about it a little bit at the end. And my payment for helping since it was a free mint was around 200 NFTs. So I, I was receiving 200 mm-hmm. NFTs for helping. And here's what happened. I was in New York for something called NFT NYC. And I didn't want to even deal with this. Like I I didn't want the NFT sent to me. I wanted I was being honored at this thing called the NFT 100, which was the top influencers in NFTs. Um I just wanted to mingle with my friends and go to all the events. So, I hit up someone who worked with me and I said, "Hey, um, can I have these NFTs sent to your wallet? And then I sent them, I don't know if you know these terms, but gas. I know, I know loosely what these Yeah, are. so I, I sent them Ethereum from my doxed wallet. I wasn't trying to hide anything because when they sell it, they, have, they need Ethereum for gas money for the transactions. So I just told them, hey, if the price goes up, you can sell them in bundles. Because what was I going to do with 200 NFTs, like just keep them? Yeah. I, that was my payment for it. What does anyone do with an NFT? Yeah, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, what happened was I had told them to sell in bundles if the price went up, not thinking that this person would like sell chunks of them or all of them. 
gave very vague instructions. They ended up selling, I think, all 200. And then, and then people started taking recordings of Twitter spaces that I did. And then there was this story that came up on, uh, on Twitter that I pumped and dumped. So you didn't get a, a rug pull or whatever they call it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's what they thought I was doing. And, uh, and I was like, oh, my God, that's not what I was trying to do at all. Um, and one of my sponsors called me and said, hey, people are reaching out to us. What are you going to do? This is a crypto sponsor? It was a crypto sponsor. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put all the money back in the collection because, of course, they're mad that I, you know, that I have money off of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I- I'm going to give all the money How back. How much money I- was it? Was it a lot? It was like... I think 40,000, but then there were also people that claimed that they bought so many, many that were messaging me. Mm. And I even sent money to them, thousands of dollars. And, the, and yeah. these transactions are available for anyone to see. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to do that. Um, and it, it's not like I was doing it for these people. I was doing it for my own conscience because mm-hmm. there was a point where I'm like, wait, am I a bad person? Mm-hmm. You know? And so uh, put all the money back in the project Um, And the sponsor goes, you should make a statement. And here's where I wish I took your advice. These people do not give a shit. They're out there with their pitchforks. They don't care what you say. They don't give a shit about you. And and so um, I wrote this thing. One of the sentences, because I didn't know how to be like, okay, it was my fault, but it wasn't. I wrote, mistakes were made in a wallet I control, Hmm. which became a meme. Like if you see that anywhere... That's all me. That's my sentence. It's a meme. People use it all the time. Um, I got memed. Uh, tons of people started dogpiling on me. Um, there was a guy who goes by the name of Zach XBT who wrote, who made a post. And, like, he's the guy that, like, uncovers scams. He calls himself an on-chain sleuth. And he made a post about me uh, pump and dumping. Then there were there were articles in crypto uh, in crypto uh, outlets that came out about me. Nicole Benham pumps and dumps media personality, blah blah blah, and uh, it it turned my life around. For two weeks, I was just like, I don't even want to be alive anymore. Like it was so, it felt like the whole world was against me, mm-hmm. and I it it made things very clear for me. First of all, I saw which friends backed away from me because that had happened and which ones came to my side and they're like, look, you're a good person. Whatever happened, let's just move through it together. Like it, it, it really puts things in perspective when you're down bad oh, totally. and having the right support system changes everything. And what I noticed was the, the people who reached out, a lot of them were wealthy or famous in some arena. And they're like, Hey, this has happened to me. I was just going to, that was my next question is, I was going to say the people that reached out to you are probably ones who had experienced it. Yes. Yeah. And that's what happens the bigger you get. Totally. Now there's a microscope on uh-huh. you. And that offered so much perspective. Um, one guy was like, hey, I used to work at Facebook, and I was doing stuff with people's data. Um, nothing illegal, but just, you know, people had found out. Um and here's how I got it wiped off the internet. If you want to call this guy, he'll get it wiped. He'll get all this wiped off the internet. And I started talking to other people, and they had other resources. 
Um, and then one guy goes, you know, Nicole, this guy is, is associated with Elon Musk. He's literally always in communication with Elon. Elon has articles about him pump and dumping, pumping and dumping. Gary Vaynerchuk has articles about him pumping and dumping and started naming all of these people that have been accused of doing the same thing who are extremely, you know, well-liked yeah. in, in society. Of course, there are people who have actually rug-pulled whose intention was to do that, but that's not everybody. So... So that guy was like, you should just keep the article up. It kind of makes you look like a boss. Did you keep it up? Yeah. That was the right move. Thank you. Yeah. When, um, you, when you hide it, it just shows that you're embarrassed or that like you actually uh, I did, you don't want it out there. I did delete the apology tweet because it was so inauthentic. Yeah. Like I, I genuinely was sorry if anybody did lose money, but I know who I am. Mm -hmm. And there's no – if I was the type of person that was trying to rug pull people, I would have kept that money. And I didn't. Totally. I didn't. And, you know, the internet turned on me. I saw some people that I thought were my good friends turn on me. Um, there were months that I felt like very alone. And then this podcast started doing really well and getting traction. And then a lot of those people just came out of the woodwork. And they're now trying to be a guest trying to try, Trying to, yeah, trying to come on the podcast. That's how shit works. That's how shit works. Yeah. Um, and I can definitely, and here's the other thing. My identity was so wrapped up in being this like NFT personality. And everyone's like, Nicole, you're not that. You're not a degenerate. You don't spend your time gambling, um, buying NFTs. Of course I have some NFTs and some, you know, some of the communities and founders that I like, mm -hmm. but that's not who you are. That's not who I am. I'm just, I like sitting here talking with people like you. You know, if it happens to be an NFT founder who built something really cool, I'll talk to them. But for the most part, that ain't me. And this and is why I was going to go ahead. Yeah. So so it, it completely brought me back to myself and it really helped me gain perspective about who I am and what I want to do and who I want to surround myself with. This is why you have to have yourself to fall back on. That's why. That's why I'm so wary of people having to belong to things so desperately. Because yeah. at some point, you're, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen where you're going to have, have, have to rely on yourself. Oh, and that, you know, they, they, were, they use the word community religiously, you know, the mm -hmm. NFT world. It's not a community. These people turn on each other all the time. They're engagement farming uh -huh. all the time. They're just, it's the wildest thing I've ever seen, and I don't recommend it to a lot of people. I think the technology is really cool, um, but I think the way that people engage is frankly just not healthy. Um, last question. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So it's hard for a lot of people, especially someone like you. You have a lot of messages you want to share. You've shared many today um, to decide what message is the most important that you feel like most urgently needs to be shared in this day and age or today. Um, and so I came up with this scenario. So you're at the Oscars. And you're nominated. I like it already. You like it already. Yep. Um, you're nominated for, let's say, a documentary about Let's get better. Being weird. It's getting better. Good scenario. About being yourself and being weird and embracing that. Um, and they announce all of the nominees. Finally, they call a winner, and it's you. <laughs> Sounds about right. Score. Um, and so you walk up to the stage. You think everybody you need to thank, your parents, your girlfriend, wife, whatever, you know, wherever you're Partner. at. Partner. Partner. Girlfriend. Yeah. Girlfriend, yeah. Um, 
your son, and when you're done thanking everybody, uh, there's about 45 seconds to a minute window where you can say whatever you want. There's going to be headlines. It will be viral on TikTok, Reels, X, Threads, every social platform, and it's going to be shared everywhere. Um, what what are you going to say in that 45 seconds? I would tell people that in life, I think you need to seek to become what you fear. And I think what I mean by that is what you fear the most is often what you need to lean into because there's a reason why you feel so uh, afraid of a, of a certain scenario. And when you try to become whatever it is you're afraid of, you're probably going to find out that it's not as bad as it is. And honestly, it's, it's what you actually want. Um, and I, I think my life's a perfect example of that. Everything I feared becoming, I eventually became, and my life's better now because of it. I was afraid of becoming vulnerable. I was afraid of becoming a father. I was afraid of becoming someone who had a real responsibility. I was afraid of becoming, um, you know, a writer who was, who was taken in a different light than other than just being like a comedy writer. I was kind of afraid of having that, you know, connotation. And I realized all the reasons why I was afraid of it. And then now that I'm there, it's, it's better than my life would have been. If you continue to, I think if you continue to resist your fear your whole life, you're just, you're just limiting your potential. There's a reason you feel that fear and you have to lean into it. Your fear is as much a compass as it is a coffin. It'll direct you where you need to go or it'll just bury you alive. That's so true. Um, I'm going to lean into my fears. I'm super inspired by everything, this conversation that we have. I feel like I'm going to go listen to this podcast again. <laughs> um, but thank you for coming on. And I think everybody should buy all your books. Thanks for having me.